The Appendix N Podcast, episode 42, The Carnelian Cube by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. Welcome to the Appendix N Podcast, a Tome Show production. My name is Jeffrey Wynn. This is the show where we discuss the tales of the authors that appeared in Appendix N of the 1979 Dungeon Master's Guide, meant to serve as inspirational reading for those who would master the dungeons of fantasy. You might say a dream is like a story you tell yourself when you sleep, and the game of Dungeons & Dragons is a shared storytelling experience. So when we play Dungeons & Dragons together, aren't we really sharing each other's dreams? But as comedian Dave Attell says, nobody wants to hear a story about a dream, come on! For those of you listening at home, you are encouraged to read along with us and send us your comments. Listen to the end of the episode for some of the stories we'll be discussing on future episodes. And email your thoughts to thetomeshow at gmail.com. And now, a word from our sponsor. Like dice? Need more dice? Check out easyrollerdice.com for amazing dice, including their gunmetal and rose gold collections. When you visit... Make sure to use coupon code TOME, that's T-O-M-E, at checkout and save 15% immediately. Again, go to EasyRollerDice.com and use code TOME at checkout and save 15% and snag yourself some great dice and gaming accessories. Okay, on with the show. I think, did we lose people? I'm here now. I got dropped, but I'm here. I have not gone anywhere. Jeremiah? I'm I'm always here. Oh. <laughs> Even when I sleep? Yes. <laughs> uh, and with me, as always, is my co-host, Jeff Wickstrom. Hiya. And my returning guest, Jeremiah McCoy. Hadley-ho there. Jeremiah, if this were someone's first episode, what would you want them to know about you? Um, I am a writer, blogger, and YouTuber about gaming. Awesome. And returning guest, also Lewis Brenton. Hello. Hello, Lewis. If this were someone's first episode of the Appendix N podcast, what would you want them to know about you? Oh, I am a pretty much a lifelong gamer. Started playing D&D back in 83 or 84 and have been doing RPGs ever since then. And I enjoy reading and enjoy these conversations. Awesome. Well, we're we're prepared for a, a, a rip-roaring discussion tonight. I have a glass of wine in my hand. It's called, it's called Apothic Dark. Uh, that's a good choice. <laughs> it's, it's, it's almost pitch black. Um, Okay, so we are discussing the novel The Carnelian Cube by L. Sprague de Camp and Fletcher Pratt. Uh, It was uh, published uh, in hardcover by Gnome Press in 1948 and later in paperback in 1967. I have the paperback edition, which features a rather... Uh, fetching-looking woman in, in what looks like like belly dancer uh, outfit, sitting on top of the eponymous Carnelian Cube, which is in turn sitting on top of what I'm assuming is 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 Finch, although he's dressed like some kind of um, uh, uh, Jetsons. Yes, from the Jetsons. <laughs> yes. Uh, does does it 
Does your copy have uh, purple pages? Uh, yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Are we all are we all working off of the 1967 paperback edition? Yes, with artwork <laughs> by Kelly Freeze is the artist who did the cover, and uh, the 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 cover art is is actually quite good. I'd call it the best thing about the uh, about the book. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's While interesting because I can't. Things to say. Uh, I'll I'll say yes. This was an excellent piece of artwork on the cover. I, I don't know that I'd call it excellent, but it definitely conveys a tone that which I think is the tone that the Carnelian Cube is trying to go for: mm-hmm. wacky, inventive, a little sexy. Mm-hmm. Where'd you Where'd you find an an, an art credit for the for the cover? Uh, I knew Kelly Freeze. Oh, oh really? Okay. Yeah, I, and I, I've met him at conventions when I was growing up. Okay. I recognize the artwork because I read the stuff. So. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm just gonna read the back matter because I, I find it mildly uh, uh, amusing. Uh, the, the the Dreamstone. Arthur Cleveland Finch was a practical man, the staunchest of citizens, but when he slept with this ancient cube of redstone under his pillow, he woke to a world where practicality seemed to be against the law. Finch found himself a poet in a country where poets were highly valued and where a man could be arrested for reciting a poem in public. Fleeing for his life, the magic of the Carnelian Cube carried him from world to world, and each world proved more fantastic and more dangerous than the last. L. Sprague de Camp, in person, seems to be the very model of a dignified conservative gentleman, but in his writing proves to have a rare mastery of wild fantasy humor. With Fletcher Pratt, the famed Civil War historian who passed away a few years ago, he wrote such classics as a, fa- a fantasy as The Incomplete Enchanter and The Castle of Iron, both of which have been reviewed on Appendix N. DeComp is also famous for his work in completing with Lynn Carter the saga of Conan, the Robert E. Howard stories, which are now available from Lancer. So I, I, I like that they have to point out that he is a dignified conservative gentleman. <laughs> well, so, it's it's supposed to be funny, right? Because it's a it's a humor book. This is full of jokes. <laughs> okay, so is who it? wants? <laughs> <laughs> uh, who wants to take a stab at summarizing the premise of Carnelian Cube? I'm not sure that it can be accurately summarized. Uh, you have this guy, Arthur Cleveland Finch, who jumps from world to world. Uh, he goes through, I want to say, four different worlds. I'm maybe misremembering. If you include, um, include the real world, yes. Four. Yeah. So the real world to um, crazy world where people wear pajamas to the world uh, which is a bizarre pastiche of the South and uh, to the world which is full of Nazis. <laughs> okay. Something like that, yeah. <laughs> but the thing is, every time he jumps, the rules of how of, of what his transition means change. The first time he goes from being in Armenia to being in Kentucky. And the second time he doesn't travel anywhere in space, just from one universe to another. And then uh, the, the third time he travels, he travels into the, the whole lifestyle of a person. And unlike the first few times he he remembers all of these facts about uh about his life there mm. so there's there's really no consistency yeah this yeah. this novel this novel reads like somebody's nano project 
<laughs> that sounds pretty accurate, I think. Yeah. It sounds like an insult to NaNoWriMo. Um, yeah. I, 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 I'm, I struggled to find something in this book that was redeeming and interesting. Um, and the last two chapters are about as close as you get. The last two or three chapters. Yeah, I agree. That's the the most interesting part of the story is that um, no, no, there's no question. Um, but yeah, the I found the uh, the inconsistency about his own experience of flipping from world to world to be really off putting, and especially the last one, which almost was trying to pitch us the idea. I felt like, well, this is actually the real world, and even his original archaeological from the reader's viewpoint is supposed to be the real world was actually just one of those dreams too, but then it flips and it's not either. That would have been a, a more interesting take on it. I think. Yes. Yeah. I wish he'd run with that. And in the, in the last world, he is trying to recreate a, a battle in ancient Syria. Yeah, I think. Agent Israel. Okay. Yeah, the well, they were they were right 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 next door to each to each other. So. Yeah, the Assyrians are invading the northern kingdom of Israel. You know, like like they did. Sure. That's there's right. a there's a whole book book about it. It's called the old the Old Testament. Indeed. <laughs> um. So yeah, he he starts out. He's an archaeologist in Turkey. Uh, and he 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 confiscates a weird little carnelian cube with writing on it in Etruscan from one of his his hirelings, I guess. Uh, and apparently if you sleep with it under your, your, your pillow, uh, whatever you dream is where you end, end up. Although the, the, the guy who, who owns it implies that that when, when he sleeps with it, he, he goes to a very nice place. And when he wakes up, he's back in, in the real world, but that doesn't happen to Finch. It's very different from Finch's experience. Yeah. Yes. I, I should point out, uh, because it, it, it sets part of the, the tone for why I immediately had a problem with the book. It doesn't make it past the first page and a half before he makes a offhanded racist mental comment about his, you know, Turkish assistant. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and, uh, when you read the books that are, you know, from this area era and before there is a tendency to sort of forgive being products of their time. Mm-hmm. We do it with Lovecraft. We do it with Howard, you, you know, but there comes a point where you sort of run out of the ability <laughs> to forgive. <laughs> Especially when it's not a good book to be, to, to, be, to begin with. Right. And, you know, the first page and a half, he's basically commenting about, you know, how he is kind of a a, a rat, basically, mm-hmm. and that, but that's okay because his people are like that. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> like, I, uh, no, <laughs> I want to like this book, but I can't. <laughs> I just can't. Yeah, he doesn't lead off well, that's right. Yeah, I mean the well, the racism is just baked into the structure of some of the settings that uh, that Finch goes to. So let's let's Prob- start with the with the first world. Okay, so the first world makes no sense. 
it's you know what you know what i would describe the first world that he that he goes to as very lawful neutral and the second world as very chaotic neutral maybe so yeah so yeah. can you can you have a slave holding society that's chaotic uh are there slaves in the in the second world if they're not, then they're sharecroppers who may as well be slaves. They're, they they strike me as early post Civil War is what they're what they're aiming at. I don't know that there's directly slaves in that in the Second World, which is set in in the Memphis area. Uh, let's let's, uh, let's let's try bare and, minimum. There's a there's a serf like agricultural class. Yeah. Let's, uh, let's, who let's, don't get to participate in all the rugged individuality that uh, that drew Finch to the South. Yeah. Now listen to Jeff. He's trying to keep us on track, and we're just all over the place. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry, yeah. Jeff. I'm uh, sorry. It, it's okay. It's uh, I, I I may have uh, forgotten details here and there, but that's okay because there's just so many details because it yeah. it bounces around from plot line to to plot line. Uh, so okay, the, so let's talk about the first world. Yeah, the 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 first world uh, appears to be uh, he 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 gets there by wishing um, to be in a world where everyone was was uh, rational, I guess. And so he basically ends up in in a house that is like a giant uh, compound, and there's a there's a very uh, there's there's a structural hierarchy and and lots of rules and everybody has an unassigned uh, role. His 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 name is fit is a uh, Finch Arthur poet, because I guess in that world it, it makes it makes more sense to say last name first name and then job. That's just the definition of rational, right? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That that struck me as odd just right away because it's not rational; it's structured. You know, um, fairly, fairly strictly structured. I mean, it's not. There's room to move amongst the different castes and the caste system here, but uh, it's but also it, the it case structured. that it's also the case that all of the female characters that we encounter have the name something something misses. Uh, you know, wife is their occupation apparently. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I, and I would say that his his wish seemed more like he was wishing for a place where people knew their place, and that world is built on that notion. Everybody has a place, and they know their place, and they're expected to stay in their place. Well, to to me, this this, this world uh, made me made me think of uh, Modrons on the on the plane of. Mechanist, because as as described in uh, the Planescape campaign setting, uh, Modrons have have rules that that, that they absolutely follow you, the, the, and the rules may not make sense to you; they make sense to Modrons. Um, so it 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 doesn't make it eg- exactly safe. Um, but this so this this little this this, this little uh, d- dimension hopping journey. May have been Gygax's inspiration for the for the lawful and chaotic planes. It's kind of like an interesting concept in the abstract. I don't know that up to this point in Appendix N we've really seen this thing where characters go to different settings in this way because mm-hmm. it, it really is like going to different like worlds in a video game or something, um, which I don't think there's a lot of precedent for. I I think that. Um... Elspring the Camp is considered one of the, the classic masters. And I've read some of his stories that I liked. This wasn't one of them, mm. but I have read some. Um, and uh, I think one of the things he does here that maybe nobody has done before and is done better by later authors 
is that sort of transitioning from world to world thing. Um, and, and yeah, I, I think that's the one sort of D and D ish thing that you can take away from it. Mm-hmm. Honestly, is that it is the, the sort of traveling from world to world based off of sort of an ideal. Well, Elspray yeah. the Camp also has his hero on page 13 say the line, I swear to God, by God, if I were Hitler, I'd fix things. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think um, Jeremiah. What I was going to start to say, and you and you've already hit that point a little bit, is I think the most significant difference with this bet- from other world hopping books that we've seen is the world hopping is all within this world. You know, it's it's all they're all loose riffs on the regular world, but there are massive philosophical value differences. So it's, you know, it's, it's like going from Earth 1 to Earth 2 in, in DC Comics. Yeah, sort of like that. Because More like it's, going from Earth 1 to Earth 3, right? Earth 3 is the world where everybody is, uh, who is a hero is a villain, and the only superhero is Alexander Luther. I'm not, yes. I'm not getting into a DC Comics debate with you. <laughs> that's, that's, that's fine, but um, it the also reminds... The crime syndicate? Yeah, yeah, the world crime syndicate. Are we talking yeah. about pre-crisis or or post-crisis, Jeff? Because that makes no. a big difference. <laughs> let's let's <laughs> pretend I'm talking about the Grant Morrison graphic novel uh, JLA Earth Two. Okay, I, uh, in, I in didn't which, read it. So. In which Earth Three is actually Earth One, and Earth One is Earth Two. You lost me. That that went over like a lead balloon. Okay. Yeah. I, no, I I remember reading it. Um, but yeah, I I actually the the classic fantasy series that this actually brought to mind while I was reading it is the nine princes of Amber by Hmm. Rogers Lasney is written much later, but it deals with a similar sort of uh, the, the main characters in the, in that series can travel through worlds by sort of wishing for changes to the world around them and just travel until they reach the world that they want. Yeah. I don't Hmm. know that they, in in the the Amber stories, there's really ever talk of how they go to worlds that have a theme. No, um, they, but they do look for like they look for like specific um, artifacts or qualities or something, and they go to a world that has has that. Yeah, uh, you know, I, I want to have a sword, so I go to a world where there's a sword on the other side of this tree. Um, well, Roger Zelazny is on the appendix end list, so we we may we may read Nine Princes in in Amber. Someday. It, it's a good book. Someday. It is. It's a really good book. What the whole thing makes me think of, though, is um, GURPS Alternate Earths mm. and uh, its, its sequels and GURPS uh, Infinite Worlds and, and so forth, where there's a lot of talk of different parallel Earths having a, having a theme, uh, which is really, uh, in a gaming context, it's a useful shorthand because it's allows you to create a, a different culture, different cultural feel kind of offhandedly. What's that? I enjoyed GURPS Alternate Earths. I did not enjoy this. I feel like just repeating I did not enjoy this over and over again is, is <laughs> going to be boring to listen to this. So I should probably not we, we should find new ways of saying this was a good book. <laughs> it's like it's like sliders, but not as good. 
yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's, it's it's very much sliders. If sliders was terrible and racist, <laughs> um, yeah, the, the uh, I also okay. I don't know if Lewis said this. Uh, I definitely had this reaction. You ever hear like somebody from up north try and do a southern accent badly? Oh yes, yeah, man, hundred <laughs> percent. Yeah. <laughs> I know where is, you're going, Jeremiah. <laughs> this is somebody doing a southern accent badly in print. Yes, that's right. Yeah, the re- if our listeners or listener doesn't know, <laughs> um, Jeremiah and I are both from the great state of Tennessee. We live on opposite sides of it. But uh, you're are you in the Knoxville area? Is that right? Yeah, I'm in Knoxville. You're in the Memphis area, right? Yeah, and I'm in Memphis. Yeah, mm-hmm. so. So yeah, they the second world is set around Louisville, and then um, no, first world, the first alternate world is around Louisville, and then the second one is around Memphis, and the third one briefly mentions a couple of Memphis landmarks, but it doesn't make a big deal out of the fact that it's Memphis. Yeah, so. I wonder. I wonder why they chose to set it in the American South when neither neither Elsbog de Camp or Fletcher Pratt are from from there. Right, and man, that's that was something I thought about. Um, as I was reading it, is these guys, when I read this, what I saw was someone who had looked at a map of Memphis and hit a few landmarks, but then just practiced, wrote in Southern tropes rather than, <laughs> you know, actually the vibe of what it's like to live here. Well, you know, maybe it, it, it's alternate worlds. Maybe in, in alternate worlds, they, they actually do speak, speak that that way <laughs> well i i admit that i moved out of arkansas uh, a good 16 17 years ago now but it is i don't recall telepathy being a southern trope yeah okay that so in not the... so much we do we do prefer to settle our disputes with gunplay as much as possible in the Memphis part of the state i don't know if how yeah that... no I, I i recall that part yeah i liked i liked the uh, uh vegetarian rest restaurant restaurant yeah i i the, the when I first started having the reaction was in the f- the first alternate world where the low class speech was sort of black southern slang a la the um, uh, Amos and Andy show mm. yeah mm-hmm. and I was like oh this is not good that, that's <laughs> that's not good and, and and then it's sort of high high English these and thous, if you're talking to somebody who is your better. <laughs> yes. Oh yeah, you're you're supposed to use use thou for someone better than you and and you for someone who's your equal and and use, I guess, for someone who's Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the first things you. that Finch does when he gets to this new world is just in in uh, incense a guy by saying you 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 to him a bunch. Yes, and he can't figure out what he's doing wrong because he's not paying very close attention to his surroundings. Apparently, and, and then the second world is uh, the South, as told by a cross between the Beverly Hillbillies <laughs> and Foghorn Leghorn. Okay, so he 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 gets to the second world by wishing for 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 more uh, in in individualism, which was which was missing from the first world that, that he goes to. So he ends up in a world where uh, nobody listens to anybody and everybody just does what they, what, what they want, basically. Except of course, for all of the people who, you know, work the land. 
Well, yeah, you but they you, don't they don't count still, their background. You mm-hmm. you still end up with like strong men and and bully boys who who rule by by uh, force. He he winds up with um, uh, basically Colonel Colonel Sanders um, <laughs> with a with a with a gun who like shoots anybody that that tries to look at his uh, wife and he he and he can read minds. <laughs> Well, yes. he's, he says he he, he can, uh, and uh, and apparently this all this violence is is over over a, a literary club. They they like 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 the first scene is a is a it is a chase where they where they gun down members of a of a rival of a rival publishing company. I think. Yeah, it's that really just makes so little sense. <laughs> um, yeah, what happens when Finch goes from the the second world to the third world, from the from the rational world to the individualism world, is he goes to sleep on like a riverbank and he wakes up, and he wanders around and he finds a road, and then on the down the road comes a car, and the car has an empty seat and they stop and he gets in and then suddenly he's a member of their gang. That's right. And it's it's so inelegant compared to the relatively sophisticated thing of uh, how he gets from that world to the next world where he wakes up and he's, you know, doing a thing because he's aware of his plate of his role and place in the world. And he doesn't, he's not just some guy who stumbled in out of the woods and was inexplicably, uh, it just, it just pisses me off. (laughs) (laughs) There, There were so many parts of that, that pissed me off. Like his one complaint about the second world was, uh, you know, the, the unfortunate thing that he saw as a problem in the second world was not the blatant racism, the misogyny, the, the marginalization of, of African-Americans. No, it was the gunplay. That's right. Um, too much gunplay. Yeah, too much gunplay. He also, uh, at one point, they described the guns surrounding uh, Memphis as having three-inch wide barrels, which... Um, you know, if you know anything about guns, that uh, that puts them in a whole new category. Oh yeah, that's artillery. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's that's no. I don't know. I, I was. I, I was. I don't know what they're the invading Arkansians are supposed to be packing with G's. Yeah, I know? spent the whole that whole section, uh, the whole second. I, I trying to figure out whether there was a a federal government of any kind, uh, or for that matter, a state government, if. Uh, if this was just an a, a independent anarchic city state in a some kind of no man's land, a fallen fallen empire where only the telepath with the biggest gun ruled. <laughs> so they, 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 they do run run into, into actual tel- telepaths at, at one point, or people with, with psychic powers who are able to call up uh, ghosts. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Because that's that's the thing that the the book really needed at that point was <laughs> was necromancy. Yeah. <laughs> and ironically, that I almost as bizarre as it is, that was one of the more redeeming parts, just in the sense that the the ghost that the uh, the one medium calls up is the most obnoxious individual, <laughs> you know. And I'm like, well, sure. <laughs> Why would the ghost be all? Ooh, I will help you on your secret quest. Hey. He wants a cigar. And he wants to play poker. <laughs> and, and, and by the fact that, that that is the redeeming point should say something about how bad this book actually is. Yeah. Yeah. It's like somebody took the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy and then made it uh, unbearably awful. 
<laughs> yeah, it's 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 clearly supposed to be uh, satire. It's, to be it's zany, right? And and it's I trying to be zany. It 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 seems like like in the in the day it was it was regarded as witty. Um, I, there, I, I'm going to read off some of some of the the uh, reviews posted on Wikipedia. Uh, Thrilling Wonder Stories, a, a magazine of some kind, praised the, the novel as earthy, talkative, and frequently witty. The authors have given full range to a pair of highly fertile imaginations, and the reader does not suffer there thereby. This was this this review was published in in April 1949. Uh, Frederick Pohl. Uh, author of uh, Gateway, which led to the amazing uh, com- computer ad- adventure game, uh, liked the book. He he said it was it was uh, some some of the funniest uh, fantasy ever to to see print. So, um, I guess tastes change. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, apparently, at one point, briefly in uh, American pop culture, bad was good. And good was bad. Apparently, I is all I can figure. I well, and, you know, and, at at one point it was it was amazing to go into a, a movie theater and see a film of a train pulling into a station. So, you know, expectations. Truman was president. The atomic bomb had just been dropped. Everybody was a little crazy from the war. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what they really wanted was some terrible, terrible comedy. I, I, and they really want Finch to be like a likable rogue character for the first two worlds in this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he and, he reads a lot like uh, Harold Shea. Although I liked Harold Shea a lot, a lot more. Maybe because his taste in in, in women was better. Um, I don't, I don't know, but yeah. Well, I thought of him a lot as uh, what was the name of the the protagonist in the uh, Less Darkness Fall book? I've forgotten his name now. Oh, um, oh, he he thought everybody around him was an idiot, and uh, yeah, he was, the, he was certainly close. the guy. He was certainly the guy that I I connected Finch to most. Let's let's yeah. just call him Lester Lester Darkness. Well, <laughs> well, actually, Darkness Falls. At least I I enjoyed the exercise of Darkness Falls. Mm. Right? Yeah. It, the character yeah. was kind of a kind of a jerk, but the exercise of the story was interesting, and it hadn't really been done before in that way. And I, I, I thought it would it had value in and of itself. For that matter, to give Less Darkness Fall its credit, the novel seemed to be kind of aware that its hero was a jerk. It was just unwilling to really commit to the concept right. and make him a straight up antihero. Yeah. And, a lot of one, a lot of the jokes here went went, went over my head because they're they they're, they're all about poetry and literature that oh, I'm man. not. Yeah, man, I I have never in any of the books we've read spent so much time googling stuff. You know, <laughs> now because of what I do for a living, I I caught all the Bible references, even the mm. veiled ones. You know, sure. and uh, and there are quite a few, but man, I have I've googled so many cultural references from. Greek culture and poetry and things like that. As yeah, I, this. I, I missed some of the Carmen references. Um, they were all over my head. I, you know, I'm not a big opera guy. Uh-huh. I got most of the sort of English literature references, but I, um, when he gets to the third world, and we should probably get to the third world 
uh, because it's the only one that's actually mildly interesting. Yes. Yeah, I'm not going to disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's it has moral stakes for the main character. It's suddenly not just uh, a farcical. I'm just going to bounce around world. It actually has some depth to it. A whole book of the third section actually might have been interesting. Mm-hmm. I can see that. Yeah, it's. Uh, it's really of, of a slightly different tone than the than the first uh, two worlds, I think. Yeah, but uh, that comes from the fact I think that Finch fits into that world in a way that they don't try to make him fit into uh, yeah, the other it, worlds. It, it in some ways is the perfect world for him, and he realizes he doesn't want to live in that world because the perfect world for him is apparently terrible for everyone else. Um. Mm-hmm. And and no, the 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 whole conversation about uh, uh, the you know reason. Uh, I'll I'll lay the preface for the people who haven't read this. Uh, it's a world built on science and logic above all. And Finch in this world is a historian, a mm-hmm. recreational historian who stages simulations where they completely mind-wipe and rewrite the personalities of human beings to be historical figures and make them go live in a time of trouble that maybe we don't understand very well. So we're putting them in these situations so we can get a better picture of what was going on there. Yeah. The revelation of that, I think, is actually... Maybe the I would say maybe the best thing in the book, um, because they start talking about it in a way that presumes that Finch knows what they're talking about, and he kind of does, mm-hmm. and they they summarize it very briefly, and you, the reader, are thinking, okay, I kind of know what they're talking about, but surely they don't mean that they just murder thousands of people for no good reason, uh, or or in the name of historical curiosity. Surely that's not what it means, but then it, it, there's a sort of dawning horror that no, that's exactly what they mean. Yes, it, it felt very much like a, um, a, a a Twilight Zone or the Outer Limits kind of yeah, story. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, and I kind of liked that, um, but it ends badly. Yeah. Well, I mean, in that light, the part where he meets his uh, his assistant, and we see that his assistant turns out to be a straight up Nazi. Um, that that kind of makes it a little more satirical, and maybe makes that a little a little easier to stomach. Mm, it just sure. made me angry when I read it for the first time. Sure, yeah. I'm talking about page 182 of uh, the paperback edition that we apparently all have for what mm-hmm. it's worth. Yeah, you can't get this legally in the United States in ebook form. So, yeah, yeah. And this was written in what year? Do we say in the late 40s? 19, 1948. It was published then, but it, it, it uh, is actually set in 1939, according to the the second paragraph of it. I got you. I got you. And okay. It may have actually been written earlier, earlier than 1948. Well, that that explains why why Finch doesn't think uh, Hitler is such a such a bad guy. Yeah, and uh, it's uh, his the the uh, other doctor working on the project is Himmel. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so it, it, you know, uh, in the third section, he has a, a betrothed 
they seem to genuinely like each other and care for each other. They're trying to work out how, you know, how to make sure that the marriage is going to work and they are worried about things. She's supportive of him in a way that I I don't know that any other character in the book up to that point has been. Mm -hmm. And he, he cares about her. She cares about him. It's great. Right up until the point where she has to go get her mind wiped. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. Yes. Yeah. She volunteers to participate in it. So it's, and that raises an interesting little bit because you get the impression that most people who are in these simulations are conscripted into them. Mm. Um, but here she volunteers for it quite willingly, which shows a little snapshot of the soul of that culture of, you know, the, the, the pragmatic quote unquote educational part of the science being more important than something as trivial as an individual's life who is going to use putting herself in great danger to be part of that simulation. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That was also the, the uh, around in that area was where the book became homophobic too, since they were talking about having trouble finding enough uh, guys who were gay for some particular Assyrian core. Yeah. I don't really remember because I've kind of blocked it out. <laughs> yeah, I didn't it, pick that part up. I missed that. It, hmm. it was a it was a pretty quick, pretty quick reference. Okay. Yeah, but at yeah. that point, I was I was like actively saying, okay, so the book has been racist, misogynist, classist, <laughs> anti-Semitic. Is it also going to be homophobic? And sure enough, yeah. It, although to be, uh, it's so quick, it's easy to miss. Yeah, it, it's not a big thing where they concentrate on it. It's just you know, it, it's an offhand. It's an offhanded reference, and it's it's the kind of thing that in a better book I would be like, yeah, it was written in 1948. Yeah, sure. it, 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 in but, in a slight defense of the main character here, his reaction is, well, it's not my thing. Mm-hmm. It's not a, a moral judgment on, on it at all. It's just well, it's not for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they but that they're lamenting the fact that they can't find enough of them to throw into this situation where they'll be killed horribly anyway. (laughs) So, um, so, so the dilemma is, is it okay to use straight guys and brainwash them into being gay? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Now let me ask you guys this, um, because in this part of the book, you know, in, in the, in the weird South part, people are telepathic and necromancy works. Okay, and in this part, they talked about astrology in the last part as a science in their world, but I never could tell if it was legit or not, like within the world, you know, um, or if it was bogus, even within the world, but they were pretending it was legit. The the satires really undercut about talking about the science in the last world because they have this bizarre doctrine that whatever idea anybody has most recently – must be the best one because it fits the discovered facts. It fits more discovered facts since new facts are being discovered all the time. Sure. Um, which means that any old idea is going to get thrown out and replaced with a new one. An old dumb idea like, say, the sun revolving around the earth. Mm-hmm. Uh, for instance, I'm, I'm sure that people in that world had abandoned long ago as old hat, and now they had decided that the sun and the earth were engaged in some kind of, I don't know, vigorous lovemaking. That uh, <laughs> that we interpreted as the sun moving across the sky. Mm-hmm. <sighs> yeah, that's, that's I mean that's point. it's so that's so self evidently nonsensical from a scientific point of view that it's impossible to take seriously, and it really kind of undercuts a lot of the 
a lot of the rest of that world in right. my mind because yeah it's impossible to tell is this is this a world where astrology works or is this a world where astrology just happens to be privileged by random chance as something sure. that people accept mm. or maybe but, it's the new hotness and because yeah, of what you yeah. said is it, the, yeah. is, it, well, is it just the new hotness the yeah. the argument that that gets presented uh, at one point is that astrology is valid because it pursues a methodology uh, that is like onto science, and the character who is given a hard time for giving a bad reading is clearly giving the reading that the guy who paid him wants. Mm-hmm. Yes. And the sort of scientific rival uh, sort of foil for Finch says, well, no, you didn't follow uh, proper uh, astrological uh, methodologies. This is clearly you trying to get what this guy wants rather than what is, you know, really astrology. Um, so I, it, it, the impression I, that I came away with in those sections was that in this world... Astrology is considered a science. It's not any more accurate there. There's no indication that it somehow works. Mm -hmm. But uh, it is treated with validity. Like it is a science because it has a methodology behind it. Yeah. Yes. But, but how are we supposed to take that in light of coming to this world immediately after the Confederate telepaths and necromancers? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. See, I, I, I automatically assumed, oh, okay, in this world, astrology is real. You know, yeah. And, and, really and, and so the guy was saying you didn't do – the guy was saying the problem was you didn't do the astrology right. So maybe there, yes. there is a right way to do the astrology. The book, is, the book is just unclear on that point, as it is on so many. Yeah. yeah, it 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 feels like he maybe intended this to be like a a bunch of short stories in a in a in a magazine, or like maybe just like a bunch of ideas that that he 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 couldn't work into anything else, so he just put it into here. I I, I say he, but it's two two authors. You think 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 at some point one of them would have, would have looked to the other and said, "Hey, we have a book that doesn't make any any sense here." But um. so according to oh, I think I read it in. Uh... For our last Elsprig de Camp and Fletcher Pratt um, collaboration, their their process was supposedly that uh, de Camp would write a first draft and then Pratt would edit it. And uh, wow. I'm curious, did the did that did that break down? <laughs> yeah. So whose fault is this? <laughs> yeah. That's what we want to know. By contrast, when de Camp was working with Lynn Carter, it was Carter who wrote the first draft, and then de Camp edited that. Um, well, in a, in a few months, we'll be reading uh, the Blue Star by uh, just Fletcher Pratt on his own. So we'll we'll see we'll see how well he he holds up without anybody to prop him up. Mm-hmm. We could could we just skip to Lynn Carter? We could just read Lynn Carter. Uh, but then we'd skip the Dying Earth, and I, I know you want to yeah. get to the to the Dying Earth. Okay, so Lynn Carter and Jack Vance. And and yeah. if we're just if if we're if we're doing if we're doing this right, we could go back and add Clark Ashton Smith. And well, uh, well I I want to skip to I want to skip to to John Be- Belairs because I'm I'm betting none of you have 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 read John John Belairs and he's awesome. I, in my elementary school, I read uh, <laughs> the House of the Clock and Its Walls. Oh, I love that book. Yes, yeah. we we are so going to read that book. Yes, but gentlemen, there is a methodology, and therefore it is valid, and we will continue on our path walking through Appendix N. Okay, so yeah. mind mind wipe ourselves. 
That's and right. Head back into, the, into the simulation. I, I start my own podcast with Clark Ashton Smith and Blackjack and Hookers. Uh, <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> um, no, I, 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 yeah. This, I think we're all in agreement. This book, not good. Does it have any value for D and D? My take would be no. <laughs> I think that anything that you could get, you could extract out of this book, you can get a lot more uh, easily from reading just a, a random Planescape supplement. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's it's called out by name in Appendix N, so we, we had to read it. And oh, not so not just the author, but this particular book. This yeah. this particular book. Yeah. So clearly, mm-hmm. Gary Gygax was thinking of this book when he was writing mm-hmm. uh, Dungeons and Dragons. So, uh, it it I, I guess it it has value as a historical artifact. But um, yeah, yeah, I think the only place we would uh, I can think of to apply something from this book to our gaming is is the idea of when you're setting up a new country that the people that the players are coming to or a new plane or a demi plane or a new city state or something like that writing up just a few bullet pointed philosophical values of that city mm-hmm. because that's again I think that's the biggest difference between these three worlds is their their philosophic assumptions mm-hmm. and then how they play out in those worlds yeah i remember reading a long time ago online somewhere and i'm i don't recall where exactly a guy talking about a technique that he used for improvisational GMing. And um, his the technique was that for each culture, he wrote down three bullet points. And every time he had to generate something about that culture, he tried to reference as many of those bullet points as he could. And the example that I recall is there was like this galactic empire. And the rules for it were that it was a bloated bureaucracy nobody liked their job and um i forget what the third thing was but it meant that when the heroic player characters uh had to sneak had to sneak through the enemy base and they opened up a random door he could easily refer to his his rules and say okay it's a supply closet and there's almost nothing in it because it has not been restocked properly sure uh it's one of 50 supply closets on this floor and um, if, if you happen to know what I'm talking about, listener, uh, do me a favor and let me know. It, it also sounds a bit like uh, Fate, um, which has a, a very similar sort of mechanical structure to it, where you there are rules about the setting that the, the players all agree to at the beginning of the game. Uh, like the, global aspects? Right, and the, the, the Game Master will reference those aspects uh, when he's sort of reinforcing the setting that's there. Um, and, and, you know, he'll he'll use those as, in, you know, mechanical ways in Fate, but it's a very similar thing. Uh, you know, you could come up with a world uh, where uh, yeah, a setting in Fate and one of the aspects is individual freedom above all, uh, and another one is, uh, and also bad Southern stereotypes <laughs> and also necromancy <laughs> and, and necromancy. <laughs> and, you know, uh, and, and I think it, it does that. Um, I, I think, um, the last bit that we, we talk, you know, the last bit in the, in the book, 
uh, has some value if you want to show a society with seemingly good intentions doing terrible things. Mm -hmm. I don't know that we need fiction for that, though. Well, sure. (laughs) But when you're coming up with fanciful worlds, fantasy and science fiction, um, you carry things to a a broader extent Mm -hmm. so that you can make the point. Um, Everybody makes fun of the classic Star Trek, the guys with the white and the black on either side and you know it's it's ridiculous but it's also kind of necessary to make the point of how stupid the idea sounds yeah (laughs) and sometimes you go all right science and progress is good emphasizing new ideas is good if you do that to the exclusion it could end badly and and so they go too far. Yeah. I don't I don't disagree with that. I think that if you're if you're trying to get a good takeaway from the Cornelian Cube and how it has influenced Dungeons and Dragons, I think the world building has to be the the main thing. Mm-hmm. Uh and unless it's the comedy. I mean, supposedly Gygax's <laughs> own table was a fairly wacky place with like reporters for the Balrog Times and a <laughs> guy who was playing an undead, which meant that he started as a one hit die skeleton and we leveled up, he became a two hit die zombie. And at one point he leveled up in uh the middle of a combat and he turned from a Wraith into a white. And wraiths have the ability to fly and whites don't. So the first thing that happened as soon as he leveled up was he transformed into a white and plummeted uh thirty feet down. <laughs> That's amazing. Where'd you hear hear that story? I it may have come to me in a dream, but I think <laughs> that I read it on RPG Net somewhere. I, I don't even care if it's true because I want it to be true. Well, I mean, you you take one look at, at Gygax's actual published stuff and look at the names of things, and you realize he's got a strong sense of let's say whimsy. Yeah. The actual material components for most uh, AD and D wizard spells are slapstick comedy. Yeah, <laughs> uh, and and you know th- there are there are powerful characters that show up named Zigig. Oh yeah, I had a I had a bard who worshipped as uh, uh, Zagig. She she dressed in a in an all pink uh, cowboy outfit. As you do. Sure. Okay. Yeah, as you do. <laughs> All right. Uh, I, I, I believe we have taken this conversation uh, about as far as we can go and given Carnelian Cube uh, perhaps more time than it, than it deserved. <laughs> I, I'm really concerned now that we've made Carnelian Cube sound more interesting than it is. <laughs> uh, so let me just say for, the, say for the record, listener, that I found it a real slog to work through. Um. I, I will I will agree with that. I will second it and say that this is hands down the worst thing I've had to read as part of reading the Appendix N list. I agree with what both of these gentlemen have said. All right. Uh, I'm not sorry to have read it, but dang. I am. <laughs> I'm glad I'm sorry. to finally I'm glad to have finally gotten around and read some decamp because he's he's regarded as one of the 20th century masters of fantasy fiction and i always felt that my uh you know education so to speak was kind of lacking because i had never read anything that he wrote and now i have and i'm glad of that 
we've 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 read uh, we've read four things that like De De Camp has has worked on or been a part of, and while some of them were better than than others, none of them have been particularly great. No. Yeah, even but... even less Darkness Fall was was so so. It was it was interesting, but not not great. So. Yeah. I, I dislike this book enough that I'm sorry other people had to read it. <laughs> well, Frederick Pohl liked it, and Frederick Pohl wrote a great science fiction novel, so which which wrote led several, to several, as I recall. Yeah. Did 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 anyone play the 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 uh, gateway text ad, ad, ad adventure game? No, but I read the book. Oh, the the, the text the, the text ad adventure game was a, was a classic of its of its era. So, I hmm. I have to I I was hoping you were talking about Gateway to the Savage Frontier because I know what that is. No, it it it, it wasn't it, it was one of the ones that wasn't put out by Infocom, so that that's why it may have escaped your notice. But I I think it it was put out by the same people who who did uh, uh, Spellcasting 101, Sorcerers Get 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 mm-hmm. All the Girls. So uh, if you can if you can find it on some like dump dumpware website. I would I would look it up, but that's that has nothing to do with the Carnelian Cube, so we can talk about that after the show. Uh, in the meantime, uh, Lewis, where on the internet can people find you? The easiest place to find me is on Twitter at Rev Lewis Brenton, and all my other contact stuff is there. Okay, and Jeremiah, where can people find you? Uh, I. Uh, uh, t- I have a website, jeremiahmccoy.com. Um, I, I'm also going to shamelessly plug, I just got to, got something published. So there. Oh, congratulations. Congratulations, yeah. man. I, I, uh, I heard your house was underwater recently, so that's, that's it, it, it's good to hear good, good news. Yeah, I, I, I did have a flooded basement, uh, and the basement is where my bedroom is, so that's fun. Uh, but yeah, the, uh, I, I, I actually got a book called The Grimoire of Grimoires, and it's up on Drive Through RPG. Nice. So I self-published that. Everyone, awesome. Everyone, awesome. go buy uh, Jeremiah's Grimoire. What's it? What's it called again? The Grimoire of Grimoires. It's oh. a book of rules for Fifth Edition on uh, for uh, spell books and a few examples. Ooh. Awesome. Neat. Cool. Cool. Right. I am looking over the list of works by Frederick Pohl on Wikipedia, and I think the only thing by him that I have read is the short story Tunnel Under the World. But I liked Tunnel Under the World, so, you know, <laughs> something to look forward to. Well, I liked I liked Gateway. I liked the, the novel and the video game ad- adaptation, so. The, um, the novel was better than this one. Uh, yes. Yeah. Um, Maybe we'll eventually get to Gateway. It was published in 1977. Uh, I don't think Frederick Pohl is on the appendix in end, but if we if we ever do a corollary show, uh, we can we can talk about Gateway, the novel, and the 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 video game, which means I'll have to make you somehow dig up the video game and an emulator to play it on. So uh, for I, like our our Clark Ashton Smith and Frederick Pohl discussion hour. <laughs> hey, if you toss in Carl Edward Wagner, I'm the I'm in. 
I have <laughs> no idea who that is. Jeff Wickstrom, where on the internet can people find you? I will close this show out. Darn it. I, I don't exist anywhere on the internet anymore. I have a one-year-old. I don't I do not do anything. Um, in the event that I ever do again, you will find it at jeffwick.com, J-E-F-F-W-I-K. And I have read at least one story by Carl Edward Wagner. All right, go See. to go to jeffwick.com and and plead with Jeff Wickstrom to re- return to the internet and 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 the world of uh, writing funny uh, satires of King King Arthur. Uh, oh, thank you, can... you for mentioning that. I actually forgot to. <laughs> yes, it's it's good. I've read I've read them. They are good. And like and them. the Silmarillion. He he wrote an awesome summary yeah. of of the the Silm Silmarillion. Jeff so. Wickstrom's books are better than this one. <laughs> <laughs> you can... I have had multiple Tolkien scholars point out errors to me in my Cimmerillion summary, even though there's a disclaimer in it saying that it contains errors. So somehow that did not dissuade them. Well, Tolkien scholars are are like like Tolkien. They're they're very um, pedantic. So I, I you know I envy and admire Tolkien scholars. I, I wish I was one. I am not. Okay. Didn't stop me from writing about the Silmarillion. Didn't didn't <sighs> stop uh, didn't stop National Lamp Lampoon either. Yeah. I think I think I don't know maybe there there was a parody of the Silmarillion called the Silly Marillion. I I don't know whether it was National Lampoon or not. I okay I I question the reality of that because the audience for a parody of the Silmarillion would be made up of a subset of people who read the Silmarillion. I, Which, I swear it was it was it was announced on on the one ring dot dot net so it must be true okay you can find me Jeffrey Wynn on Twitter at Jeffrey <laughs> 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 at Jeffrey D. Wynn. That's G-E-O-F-F-R-E-Y-D-W-I-N-N. I'm also on Instagram with the same handle. You can email me by emailing the Tome Show at thetomeshow at gmail.com. Make sure to put appendix N in the subject lines so, so they get it to me. If you're reading along with us, and you should because there are great stories out there, better than this one, and they will make you a better person. Your first stop should be your local used bookstore, but if you can't find what you're looking for there, be sure to use the the Amazon affiliate link on our website, thetomeshow.com. When you shop on Amazon.com, the Tome Show gets a few pennies to pay the bills, and we sure do appreciate it. For our next episode, we will be reading or listening to, because it's available in audio form, What Mad Universe, a novel by Frederick Brown. Later this summer, we blah. Later this summer, we will start to delve into the Dying Earth stories by Jack Vance, and Woo-hoo. we have. Yes, and we have two more stories of Fafri and the Grey Mouser coming up, Claws from the Night and the Seven Black Priests. Hope you'll you'll join us. Send us your comments. This has been a Tome Show production of Appendix N, Episode 42, which is The Meaning of Life. The Carnelian Cube by Ellis Bogdekamp and Fletcher Pratt. Thanks. Do not read it. (laughs) Thanks for listening. We're friends. Out. Out.